Good morning. A sermon about love. Haven't we done this before? Don't we know what love is? Do we really need another sermon about it? Haven't we been taught all our lives that after the words Jesus and God, love is the right answer to pretty much every Sunday school question? We'd grown up with the songs, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Jesus loves me, this I know. And they will know we are Christians by our love. The centrality of love has been drilled down into us from our earliest days of Christian faith. And yet today, many are not known for their love. More and more Christians are being labeled as haters, bigots, homophobes, and hypocrites. Critics point to Christian politicians who fight for rights and privileges they would deny others. They point to churches who use the Bible as a weapon for shame and control. In social media interactions, Christian engagement can look more like attack than encounter. And as our queer brothers and sisters have told us time and time again, even intentional efforts to love the sinner but hate the sin feel a lot more like rejection and exclusion than love. How did we get here? How can so many of us in the church hear the description of love that we read this morning in 1 Corinthians and yet be so impatient, unkind, envious, proud, and disdainful of others, as if they don't share every bit of God's image with us? How can we be so self-seeking, angry, and attentive to the failures of others? How can we be so easily offended by the truth when it happens to benefit someone else? What are we missing when it comes to love? Well, that's a lot. Let's take a breath or two. There's a lot here. Let's hold these questions for a moment and jump into our text for today. Paul is writing to the Romans, this passionate first century Christian community, and he's working hard to paint the big picture of what this whole God story is about. Paul tells the Romans and the rest of us, God's story is about a is about righteousness, but not ours. It is a righteousness that comes from God, by faith. It's by grace, not by works or law or comparison with others. In fact, he says, when we judge others, we're actually condemning ourselves. We're all in this God story together, and all of our messes with us, and the ever-deepening theme of the story is peace and wholeness. Despite our tendency to do the evil I don't want to do, Paul reminds us that condemnation has nothing to do with Jesus. He reminds us of the Holy Spirit at work within us. He reminds us that we are not alone in longing for the fullness of redemption and healing that is promised to us. All creation groans and waits with us for shalom, that ultimate peace and wholeness of relationship with God, each other, ourselves, and creation. Amazingly, he says, even the hard stuff that we go through is able to be used by God for our good. He gets so excited about the power of God's love for our good that he waxes poetic about it. In chapter 8, he practically gushes, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, 
In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Take a moment to let that sink in. What a statement. What wondrous love is this? I like this line from the same passage in the message version. The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to take, be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Paul is really passionate about this love. He's been personally transformed by the radical power of God's love, and he wants to invite the rest of us into this experience. In our passage today, he tells us that love is the fulfillment of the law. If we just love, he suggests, the world will change. So here we are, back to our question. What does it mean to just love? And why do we seem to have such a hard time with it? Here we get a few descriptions of love in negative form. Love is not sleeping with someone other than your spouse. Love is not killing, not stealing, not coveting. In the previous chapter, Paul lists a whole bunch of positive aspects of what love does look like. Among them, he states, love is sincere. Love honors the other. It rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep. Love tries to live at peace. Love challenges us to overcome evil with good. There are a lot of do's and don'ts. Maybe we should start a list. Actually, don't worry about it, because Paul has summed it up for us in one easy-to-remember command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's not so bad. I just have to love others as I love myself. I can do that. Wait, do I love myself? Well, you might think to yourself, I feed myself, I shelter myself, I try to avoid suffering and pain, I buy myself a little treat every now and then. Surely that is love. But how else do I love myself? This is where a lot of Christians tend to get stuck. Am I even allowed to love myself? Isn't self-love a bit selfish? I put this question out to my Christian friends on social media and asked them what comes to mind when they think about self-love. Some told me they worry that it's selfish, arrogant, or vain, or at least very conditional. One woman shared how she grew up singing a song in Sunday school, Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. The last line was, put yourself last and spell joy. To add pain to misery, she said, It was only the women who were truly expected to do it. Several others called to mind scriptures. Don't be a lover of self. Deny yourself. If you try to save your own life, you're going to lose it. Many seem to find the prospect of Christian self-love quite risky. Indeed, one respected commentator from my own bookshelf boldly declared, according to scripture, self-love is the essence of sin. Really? Self-love is the essence of sin? 
Friends, I am here to say that this is a dangerous message, and it is not from God. Christians have been deeply wounded by this message, and as a result have learned to withhold from themselves even a portion of the love they are commanded to give so generously to others, and to feel immensely guilty when they do think kindly of themselves or acknowledge their own needs or limits. Many of us have been so steeped in guilt and shame and unworthiness that it's no wonder we don't know how to love others well. It's no wonder we tend to dish out judgment and condemnation when we have been pickling in it our own hearts in it for so long. When we are wounded, we tend to wound. When we think meagerly of ourselves, we tend to think meagerly of others. Perhaps this is why the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, is repeated so often in scripture. Originally spoken twice to the Israelites in Leviticus 19, it's quoted eight times in the New Testament, five times in the Gospel, and once each in Romans, Galatians, and James. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. It is more important than all your burnt offerings and sacrifices. Some commentators argue that the point being made here is that we're already experts at love, which they equate with selfish love. One conservative scholar writes, the biblical commandment assumes that all of us love ourselves and don't need to be taught to love ourselves. Every person in this room, without exception, has a massive love affair with yourself. You don't need to be taught at all. But is this true? Are we experts at loving ourselves? Do we actually have massive love affairs with ourselves? Or have we lost touch with what love is? It seems that part of the mix-up has to do with how we define love. For some of the commentators and for some of those scripture passages I mentioned above, when they talk about the dangers of self-love, it is something closer to toxic positivity or hedonistic indulgence or narcissistic self-prioritization. I love myself means I'm perfect and have no need for growth or transformation. I love myself by giving in to my every desire. My needs matter more than anyone else's. I'm the most important, and I'm always right. This is not love. These are human misunderstandings and distortions of love. Truly practicing self-love means loving ourselves as God loves us. It is not conditional, but it is freely given. It is not condemning, but filled with grace and loving kindness. It is not in denial of our faults, but compassionate toward them. It is not in denial of our strengths, but affirming and empowering of them. It is not stingy, but lavish and joyful and passionate. It is not actively trying to change us, but accepting of us in such a radical way that we are changed. This is how we practice self-love. We practice loving ourselves in the way that God loves us, freely, generously, graciously, compassionately, no matter what. Contemplative priest and author Richard Rohr expresses things well when he says, love is constantly creating future possibilities for the good of all concerned, even and especially when things go wrong. 
When it comes to self-love, perhaps the real sin is to hate or denigrate ourselves when God has so clearly told us he loves us and delights in us. And this, this finally learning to love ourselves like God loves us, is how we are changed. This is how we are freed to more fully love ourselves and others. When we can offer compassion and unconditional love to ourselves in the midst of all our flaws and messes, we can finally, genuinely do the same for our neighbors. In his book, The Universal Christ, Richard Rohr connects self-love with the incarnation. He writes, God loves you by becoming you, taking your side in the inner dialogue of self-accusation and defense. God loves you by turning your mistakes into grace, constantly giving you back to yourself in larger shape. God stands with you and not not against you when you are tempted to shame or self-hatred. If your authority figures never did that for you, it can be hard to feel it or trust it. But you must experience this love at a cellular level at least once. Remember, the only thing that separates you from God is the thought that you are separate from God. Loving others, loving ourselves, loving God, these things are not in competition with each other. Rather, they are intimately connected, like three cords of a strand. While some say we must love God first in order to love others, I would argue that we must experience God's love first so that we may learn how to respond with love back to ourselves, others, and God. This happens in relationship with others, in compassionate dialogue with ourselves, and by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Again, as Roar reminds us, God is relationship itself. Human loves are trial runs. Divine love is always the goal, but it can only build on all the stepping stones of human relationships, and then it includes them all. Paul affirms this interconnectedness of love, too. He reminds us of our continuing debt to love one another. He reminds us that this love of others should be informed by how we love ourselves. These things must increase together in sincerity and intensity and in truth. And then he calls us further. Wake up, he says in verse 11. This is not the end of the story. There is more work that love wants to do. The message version of verse 12 says, be awake and up to be up and awake to what God is doing. God is putting the finishing touches on the salvation work he began when we first believed. Paul pleads with us, don't waste time doing anything other than love. Don't give in to the belief that drunken partying will bring you true belonging. Don't give in to the lie that sleeping around will bring you lasting pleasure or freedom. Don't give in to the false hope that winning the fight or accumulating stuff will satisfy your wounded sense of unworthiness. Don't accept shiny but shallow substitutes for love. Instead, Paul says to put on the armor of light, which is, in fact, to put on Jesus Christ himself. Get dressed in the royal garment of unconditional love, uncompromisable worth, and unlimited grace. Wear that armor so well and so earnestly that it becomes like a second skin upon you. Finally, hear me well, 
Self-love is neither a condition nor a replacement for our outward acts of service, the pursuit of justice to which we are always called. Rather, these things will be deepened and transformed by our practice of self-love as we begin to recognize each other as closest kin. Lean in to love and watch how the world changes. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. God, forgive us for hating what you so passionately love ourselves in all of our frail and flawed humanity. Jesus, fill us with the fullness of your love in our minds, hearts, and body, your approval, your grace, your delight. Spirit, teach us what it means to love ourselves well, to be patient and kind with ourselves, to resist envying the lovableness of others or boasting that we are more lovable than others. Teach us to honor ourselves without being self-seeking to resist being angry at ourselves or writing our every sin in permanent ink upon our own souls. Teach us to rejoice with the truth of our belovedness. God, Jesus, Spirit, may these things assist us in our becoming so that we may offer the same to others for their becoming. May we experience ever-increasing joy, freedom, and healing in the process, and may this be our gift of love to you, through you and for your glory. Amen.